Danny, as you know, I am in Minneapolis to see Beyonce tonight. So um, I'm assuming she's going to call me up on stage uh, and (laughs) chit chat. So is there anything you'd like me to say to her when uh, when we're together? Oh, my goodness. Just thank you for your service. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your contributions. (laughs) I don't know. I wish I could see her in New York for a more affordable price, but it's all right. (laughs) It's all right. Thank okay, you. so I'll tell her th- thank you, and next time um, consider dropping the price tag yes. on the tickets. Got yes. it. Okay, will do. Hello and welcome to Not Another Business Podcast, where we break down business news and cultural events according to rules we've entirely made up. I'm KJ Miller, ex-corporate consultant and current CEO and co-founder of Minted Cosmetics. And I'm Daniela Dektar McCarthy, ex-corporate lawyer and current general counsel at Ness. And fun fact, KJ and I have been friends since our Harvard acapella days because we are that cool, folks. Disclaimer before we start the show, the views we express today are our own and not those of our companies. Today on the show, we are talking about fast fashion retailer Shein. I have a feeling that some of our listeners have never heard of Shein, and I feel like we are personally keeping them young by explaining it to them, um, because every woman under the age of 30 or 35 knows what Shein is, and they have gotten themselves into a ton of drama. And so it's important, it's important, listeners, that you know what this company is all about, what they're doing, and the drama surrounding them. So you're welcome for keeping you young. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there has been a lot of drama lately. And I will say, I guess I'm I'm a part of the drama because, um, as you know, because I texted you, I had my 15-year college reunion about a month ago. Mm-hmm. And I purchased all of my outfits for that reunion from Shein because it is so cheap Mm -hmm. it is unbelievably affordable Mm -hmm. (laughs) and as we i think are probably going to dig into there's a there's a cost to that affordability but Mm -hmm. as someone who you know wanted to explore some new fashions at the reunion i was like what i'm not going to do is spend a bunch of money on these new fashions so i uh i i turned to shein well, we have to get into it because, yeah, there is a cost, an ethical quandary, if you will, <laughs> in making those purchases. <laughs> and and I think the big question is, can a company that isn't embroiled in so much controversy replicate what Shein does? Or is it necessarily, you know, taking the shortcuts it's potentially taking yeah, to keep those I, prices low? I think that's I, the big question. And, and it's a question, you know, it's a tale as old of, as time when it comes to fast fashion. Like, I don't think any of the fast fashion houses are, are immune to some of the, the ills that we're going to talk about here. But it does seem like Shein is really pushing the boundaries here. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to get into it right after our shameless plug. All right, folks, today I am plugging not just Minted Cosmetics, although gotta love it. I'm plugging not another business podcast because, and we've mentioned it before, we're now on YouTube and the folks are watching and the folks are talking and they're enjoying watching us do this live, Danny, which is which is fun. I mean, we're very attractive. Right. There's that. So. <laughs> Doesn't so, matter. 
<laughs> if you, you know, are just looking for a new way to consume this podcast, head on over to YouTube, search Not Another Business Podcast. We will pop up and not only will you get to listen to us, you'll get to watch us, which, you know, just really heightens the fun. Agree. Head on over. And with that, let's get back to the show. All right, it's Flashback Friday. As a reminder, this is a segment where we dive into a previous topic covered on our show and give a little update. KJ, what are we flashing back to this week? So we are flashing back to last week's episode on the SAG after a strike because as we predicted, the actors really came in hot with this one, okay? They have been posting nonstop on social media. My entire timeline has been filled with actors going off about the strike and it has been both entertaining and informative. Yeah, I agree. I have seen one particular TikTok of a side character who was on Gilmore Girls. Mm -hmm. Now that show is beloved. I never really watched it, which is why I can't tell you the character's name. (laughs) But it's going around like wildfire because he is shitting all over Bob Iger. Mm-hmm. And and basically saying that, you know, his work has lined the pockets of, you know, executives like Bob Iger and he has not gotten his fair share because Gilmore Girls is definitely one of those shows that is watched over and over and over again. So, yeah, I mean, he's passionate, just like we expected a ton of actors to be extremely passionate and convincing. And I guess the question is, will it work? You know, it kind of seems I've seen actors essentially saying that there is zero urgency on the other side. Yeah. Right. The the AMPTP is just ready to wait it out. So yeah. how much, you know, the really successful actors can probably wait it out, too. But all those others, you know, how long can they last? Yeah. Well, that's and that's exactly part of what I wanted to dive into, because I've actually learned a lot in the last week just from watching all of these people create their content about the strike. Um, And so I wanted to just flash back um, and give a little bit more context um, to what we spoke about. So there are kind of three main areas I'm seeing come up a lot as it relates to the social media content about the strike. And the first is exactly what you just called out, um, which is exactly how little actors are actually being paid, including for some of the blockbuster shows that we all know and love. Um, So one stat that I saw going around a lot is that 87% of union actors don't make enough annual income to qualify for health insurance. And in order to qualify, you only need to make $26,000 a year, right? That is not a lot of money. And 87% of actors in the union don't clear that bar so people are not making a lot of money in acting yeah i mean i think i either read somewhere or heard somewhere someone said like the phrase starving artist came from somewhere (laughs) you know and yeah these actors are it's not livable yeah it's not and 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 to double down on that i saw a lot of people actually going into like their paychecks and how much they've actually made on certain shows or on certain films. So for instance, an actor named Julian Yao Giallo, not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, but he was in an Apple TV film this past year called Sharper. And he said, even in being in that film, obviously by Apple, one of the richest companies in the world, he still didn't make enough to qualify for health insurance, which again, $26,000. So, you know, he had a, you know, a pretty substantial role 
and didn't make enough to clear the health insurance bar. Um, another actor, her name is Grace Dua. I was not familiar with her, but she apparently is a series regular in the Max reboot of Gossip Girl. Mm. Um, she posted a video of herself working her reception job. So she like she leaves set, goes to work as a receptionist um, at a Pilates studio because she does not make enough working on that show to cover her living expenses. And I mean, I just saw many, many examples of this. I saw another actor, he was on Dear White People, a Netflix show. And he said, you know, he was paid $4,000 per episode. I think each season has like a 10 episode arc, nine or 10 episode arc. But that $4,000 after he pays his manager, his agent and his taxes is actually $1,400 an episode. So you're talking about $1,400 an episode a 10 episode arc, but a lot of times when you're filming these shows, your contract is going to lock you up in some sort of exclusivity for some period of time. Mm. So, you know, and you just wouldn't think that you're watching a show on Netflix. It's a hit show. These people seem like celebrities. A lot of them literally have second and third jobs because that money does not support their living expenses, doesn't get them health care, so on and so forth. And that's what's crazy because you think when you make it onto a show like the Gossip Girl reboot, Mm-hmm. that that actor has made it mm-hmm. you know like I saw a really passionate um TikTok from Leslie Jones who was talking about I mean she was clapping back at a lot of commenters who were like oh the rich complaining about the rich you know mm-hmm. and she mm-hmm. was just saying like I didn't make it in this business until I was 47 yeah you know <laughs> most people don't make it at all you know and and I would think that this you know something like Gossip Girl on HBO max would be making it but it's clearly not yeah wild so i i i think it's been helpful to see so many just like real examples with numbers and figures and 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 stats because it is sort of easy to assume like oh acting it's this glamorous lifestyle but you have a lot of actors saying even the actors you're seeing we're not just talking about background actors we're not just talking about extras even the actors you are seeing on shows that you love are not making enough money to to pay their bills right so that's sort of one genre of story i'm seeing a lot of the second is i'm 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 seeing a lot of posts and i don't know if you are as well about just how unreasonable the amptp is being in these negotiations so sag released a report showing all of the details of the behind the scenes negotiations like literally going line by line for each of their asks and then what the amptp responded so the one of their asks was to increase the penalty for not providing meal breaks and the penalty for failing to allow performers sufficient rest between work days because apparently the penalties that were established have not been updated since 1960 and obviously since 1960, you know, money standards have changed, changed. inflation, everything, right? Uh, Okay, so the AMPTP just flat out rejected those didn't counter, just said no, we were not going to adjust, you know, the penalties for not allowing our actors to eat. Okay, so that's, that's one. Another one was SAG proposed to increase the damages that penalty that um, these companies have to pay when they pay egregiously late which apparently is well known in Hollywood these studios takes take forever to pay you and apparently according to SAG they acknowledged like the response acknowledged that they do pay late but then said we reject this <laughs> like <laughs> while we agree that we are not a reasonable counterparty yeah we will not make any changes. Thanks we, very much. We're not, you're not going to do this, um, which is just wild. Uh, another one, I mean, and you can go online and see all of these. 
Um, another one was SAG, as we spoke about, asked for revenue sharing from the streaming platforms. So essentially just like a way of getting those residuals. If a show is doing really, really well on the platform, actors should be able to participate in that. Um, and that was flat out rejected, like not countered, just rejected. Um, and then one that I thought was particularly interesting, I hadn't heard about this, was around hair and makeup equity. So it's pretty well known that people of color often actors of color often walk onto set and are dealing with hair and makeup people who have no idea how to do their hair or how to do makeup for people of their skin tone and oftentimes are forced to do it themselves right or risk looking crazy because that person has no idea what to do with your hair and with your makeup and so one of sag's requests was for consultations with hair and makeup professionals to happen pre-show so that it was you know it's clear these people know how to do the actors of color um amptp countered they would do this for principal actors only not background actors not you know all the other people who have to be there every day and on set and and presumably don't want to look crazy but if you've got like a build name if you're Meredith Grey of Grey's Anatomy fine you know um so that was one of the things and then I, I think the biggest indicator though of how unreasonable the AMPTP is being is if you actually just look at how much money that these unions are asking for relative to the studio's profits so the example I saw was actually for WGA not SAG but I think SAG's proposal is, is um, not too far off in terms of like actual dollar amount. So if you look at the WGA, their proposal would cost studios an additional, additional $430 million. But that is across all of the studios and streamers, streamers in the AMPTP. So if you actually break that down for each studio, we're looking at somewhere between 20 and $70 million per studio, right? For Netflix, Mm -hmm. for instance, Netflix would have to pay an additional $65 million, which is equal to 0.1% of its annual profit. And they're out here just rejecting, straight wholesale rejecting these proposals. Are we sure? Like, that's the math? That's what they're fighting over? That's the math. I've I've seen WGA... Um, like president cite this $430 million figure. So that's the math. Yeah. I don't have words. I mean, that's nothing. It literally. Is it one of those things where they're like holding out on this to later concede it so that they can, you know, refrain from giving on other things? Like they'll agree to this, but then they're not going to agree to any of the AI point or something, you know, but they're not Mm going to agree to the minimum writer's room or whatever it is. Like, yeah. I think, I mean, I I would assume that's what it has to be because the actual dollar figure does not make sense for them to be pushing back against. If you're Apple and this deal is going to cost you $50 million when you're a trillion dollar company, $50 million is a rounding error, right? So like, that's not what you're holding the line on. You're holding the line because you... Like, like you just said, you don't want the writers' rooms to have to be a particular size. You don't want to give up your give up AI if that's going to save you a bunch of millions of dollars in the future. Those are the things that they're not willing to budge on, and so they're like, "Yeah, maybe this whole thing is only going to cost me fifty million, but if I give you what you want in the future, it's going to cost me much more." So, I mean, that right. that must be it. But from a dollar perspective, like, it's it's just wild. Yeah. I'll also just say as a negotiating tactic, I hate that approach. I mean, I I just maybe I can't stand protracted negotiations, but I always prefer to just be like, this is what my position is and then just stay there. 
mm-hmm. you know, rather than like pretend that I care about certain things or, you know, pretend that I won't give on certain things. Mm-hmm. I, I Personally, I just can't stand like pretending like I care about 0.1% of my profit, totally. you know? Totally, totally. Well, the third thing that I just want to raise that I'm seeing a lot of po- posts on is actually around the role of influencers and content creators. So, mm. you know, people forget, but the job of being an influencer or a content creator is actually very, very new. So the last time SAG um, uh, went on strike for its contracts was in 1980. Influencers weren't a thing. Content creators weren't a thing. Social media wasn't a thing. Now it is. And a lot of these influencers are not in SAG, but, you know, have a desire to be one day, right? Like they want to work in the entertainment industry. Um, So as soon as the strike was announced, influencers sort of began posting their opinions on whether they, as non-union members, should be actively supporting the strike or if they should continue to promote the movies and projects that studios were paying them to promote. Um, So SAG came out and made it very, very clear that anyone who works with the struck companies in any promotional or paid capacity will be barred from SAG membership in the future. So do not play games, okay? That is what SAG said. Don't be playing in our face and don't be working with these struck companies or else that's a wrap for you for any future with SAG. And that matters because most industry projects are staffed with SAG members and SAG is a huge force in the industry. So to be like permanently banned but while your career is just getting started is a big, big deal. So I've seen a lot of posts around that, a lot of influencers saying like, you know, I want to support the strike and so I don't want to cross the picket line. And so I, I, you know, I do do promotion for studios typically, but I'm, I'm going to stay away from it because like I don't want to be barred from this from this union. Yeah, I believe the term is called scabbing if mm-hmm. you pick mm-hmm. up the work. Um, and I will tell you who doesn't care about this at all. It is the cast of Love is Blind from Chicago and the cast of Love is Blind from Seattle because Uh-oh. they are promoting the Barbie movie like it's nobody's business. I mean, well, now I will say SAG did make an exception if you've already signed a contract, like if you are already mm. contractually obligated and more, more than likely anything to do with Barbie, which I think comes out tomorrow, okay. um, was previously contracted. So they did make an exception. Like you can't, don't, we're not expecting you to break existing contracts, but we are expecting you to turn down new work for all of these studios. Okay. That makes me feel a little bit better because I was feeling conflicted seeing, you know, I just felt like, oh, you guys are being used a little bit you know yeah, I mean yeah totally okay, it makes me feel a little better and I was surprised at how many love is blind <laughs> of influencers were well you know, at various Barbie parties and but such. the thing is you might not be wrong because some of them might may have had like actual signed contracts some of them may have just had invites right like and because right. they're they're thirsty bitches they just want to go to the party <laughs> <laughs> you invite me to a party like oh I want to come through so some of them might still be scabbing but I do think there's a good chance because that movie has been in you know press for the last three months that some of these guys had prior right. contracts that's true it might also just be that because we're not seeing any other promotion I am now like just assuming that this is paid promotion because I'm not seeing anything else you know like this is the only Barbie content yeah. I'm really seeing um so it might be that I'm also just assuming that they've gotten paid but you're right they just might want to go to a party in pink yeah. you know <laughs> <laughs> which to be clear, SAG has said, is also scabbing. 
even if you're not getting paid, if you're showing up to these promotional events, that yeah. is promotion. Like that is something oh, that, it, okay. that helps the studios. So if they just accepted an invite, that's scabbing. If, if, because the only way that you should be there is because you previously signed a contract agreeing to be there. If you didn't sign a contract, it's scabbing. So I, I have a feeling there are going to be some people who regret some of the choices they are making in, yeah. these, in these weeks. Yeah, you're right. You're totally right. Well, let's see. All right, Danny, hit us with the facts. For those who don't know, what is Shein? So Shein is the number one online-only fast fashion retailer. It actually got its start back in 2008 when Shein's founder and CEO, Chris Zhu, started an online wedding dress site called Inside that sold wedding dresses made in China. Now, there is a lot of mystery around this CEO. He certainly does not put himself out there as the face of the company. What we do know is that when starting Inside, he did not know much about fashion. Mm -hmm. His background was actually primarily in SEO, search engine optimization. Um, And you can imagine he applied those skills to Shein side, now Shein. In 2014, he shifted the business to focus on fast fashion. And it's at that point that the company rebranded from Shein side to Shein. Mm -hmm. Um, While it might be self-explanatory, I will nevertheless explain what we mean when we say fast fashion because we've used that term a few times now. And, you know, it's a term that I think is being increasingly used. Mm -hmm. I would say I've heard it, I feel like, a lot in the past few years. But some people might not know. According to Investopedia, fast fashion is low-priced but stylish clothing that moves quickly from design to retail stores to meet trends with new collections being introduced continuously. So Zara, H&M, those are really well-known brands that are kind of the face of fast fashion. Uniqlo, Gap, all of those are brands that listeners are probably familiar with that fit the category of fast fashion. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just add to that. I think, and I'm not a fashion girly, but I think part of the distinction is just how often they are launching new collections. Because if you look at like a Gucci, a Gucci is going to give you two, three collections a, a year. But if you go into H&M, there are new clothes dropping every week. And if you go on Shein, there are new clothes dropping every day, damn near every hour. So part of it really is just this idea of being, you know, new collections, new clothes all the time. Yeah. And I'll also say that the description or the definition from Investopedia is a polite way of describing fast fashion. I think others would call it trendy clothes for dirt cheap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and particularly at least the Shein way if you um listen to uh, an NPR podcast called Planet Money that they did on fast fashion um a few weeks ago um they described the clothes sold by Shein as quote almost disposable mm-hmm. now I've never shopped at Shein but you have as you mentioned would you agree with that description would you call them the clothes disposable You know, I'm going to say yes and no. I think they have, they feel disposable because they are literally so cheap. It feels like you could, you know, you could buy a top and if that top doesn't fit or you don't like it, you're not that pressed about it because that top probably costs you $3.50, right? Yeah. Give us an idea of the prices, like what you bought for your reunion weekend. Yes. Yes. Okay. So let me tell you this. 
I bought five full outfits, okay? And three pairs of shoes. And my total was $120. Five outfits, three pairs of shoes, $120, okay? Each outfit was either a pant and top set or a short and top set, okay? Five of those plus three pairs of shoes, $120. Um, so it is, it is extremely, extremely cheap. Now, the reason I said yes and no on it feeling disposable is, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually not upset with how well the clothes have held up. I've put them all in the washing machine. I'm certainly not taking them to the dry cleaner. Okay. They've all been in the washing machine many, many times. Um, nothing is disintegrated. And the last time I bought something from Shein was maybe two or three years ago. I bought a dress that I still wear and I still, I, you know, I still have. So while, it doesn't feel high quality by any means. I have not, ex- it has not been my experience that like it just disintegrates upon, Got you it. know, arrival. That that has not been my experience with Shein. Though, do people say that that's the experience? Like online, people review the clothes? You know, I think that that was more of the experience from what I gather um, kind of, you know, a few years ago. From what I gather, their quality has increased a bit but also i think a lot of influencers they are wearing it as fast fashion they are wearing it as like this is the outfit that i'm wearing summer 2023 you're not gonna catch me in it fall 2023 (laughs) (laughs) you're not gonna catch me in it summer 2024 like it is for these three months um and i think because of that even if it is gonna disintegrate you know it's past its prime after two months so you don't care Right. Okay. So that actually takes us to some of the numbers. Um, The company really took off in 2020 during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. In 2022, so last year, uh, Shein raised $1 billion at a valuation of more than $100 billion, according to a report in the Wall Street Journal. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The company raised another $2 billion earlier this year at a $66 billion valuation. So obviously a, a third lower valuation, but still quite large. Shein generated about $23 billion in revenue last year. Jesus. Now, by comparison, H&M's market cap is about $28 billion as of July of this year. Zara's parent company has a market cap of about $119 billion. And to put that all in perspective, as we mentioned, Shein only started in 2008 as a wedding dress company, has only been in kind of everyday wear since 2014. By comparison, H&M Group has been around since the 1940s, and Zara's parent group has been around since the 1980s. So, I mean, Shein's rise has been fast, okay? Yeah, yeah. Now, interestingly, according to a UBS securities report published in June of this year, despite the clothes being so cheap, Shein's average customer is a 34.7-year-old woman who earns $65,000 in annual income and reports spending $100 per month on women's clothing, which is 60% higher than the average U.S. woman. So people are spending more on Shein. Yeah. I got to tell you, that makes so much sense to me. And it's so... This is why I personally find consumers so fascinating and like the product space so fascinating. When I've spent my whole you know career in retail, 
because consumers do things that you don't expect. You know, if you just go on this website and you see that like all the shirts are $4 and the shoes are $8 and whatever, you're assuming this is like high school teeny boppers getting their like high school fashions. When in fact, it's grown women shopping this site and dropping a hundred bucks every month because they can. A hundred bucks every month at Nordstrom is gonna get you a belt, okay? But but on Shein, it is going to be multiple outfits and that I mean it's just fascinating I find consumers to be fascinating I agree it is I mean it, it, but but you're right it's it's women who are shopping and they're like okay these are my going out outfits for this season mm-hmm. right totally these, I'm gonna mix and match some of these you know or maybe I'll only wear them once this summer I have that event coming up right but you know and then they're doing that every month they're doing every it month. you know yeah yeah. And, and you know, I, I think a lot of people probably are thinking about it the way I am, which is you and I have spoken about on this show before. I do not consider myself to be fashionable. If I do want to, you know, tread water in a new fashion trend, for instance, crop tops, that's what I wanted to experiment with at Reunion. <laughs> I was like, I'd never wear crop tops, but the internet girlies are telling me that gr- women of all sizes can wear crop tops. And so I'm going to test it out. But what I'm not going to do is spend a bunch of money to test it out. Because if it looks crazy, I don't want to have dropped, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Right. So I went to Shein. And I think a lot of women are thinking about Shein that way. Like, I want to try this new trend, but I don't want to spend a bunch of money on it. Because what if it doesn't look good on me? Right, right. Yeah. And so maybe part of it Obviously, the draw and how it's risen so quickly is just the price point. But there are other differentiating factors also aside from, you know, the CEO's SEO skills right. that got <laughs> Shein to where it is. Yeah. Um, so let's and- talk about that. How how did this company get so big? Because it does feel like it just exploded in right. the last couple of years. Right. So first, and this is the least exciting differentiator, but they are online only. So they're not dealing with any of the costs of brick and mortar. I know we've previously talked about how DTC brands that started online only are moving to brick and mortar like, you know, Warby Parker. But Shein's not doing it and they seem to be fine. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, and this is actually and ends up being tied to some recent controversy, but they use AI to design their clothing. Mm-hmm. There isn't a ton of detail on on you know how their models work, but the consensus is is essentially that they are using AI technology to identify consumer trends. So they're scanning social media, they're scanning online content, they're deciding what is the biggest thing at any given moment, and then they're designing clothes also using that AI technology based on the trends that they've identified. Um, analysts are calling this real time retail. According to a Vox article written by Terry Nguyen called Shein is the Future of Fast Fashion, is that a good thing? Shein's clothing designs are generated in as few as three days. That's what Nguyen writes. That is amazing. And also, you can kind of tell um, that Shein is using AI when you're on their site because a lot of the clothes, like, are not actually on a model. Like, they have very clearly... Mm generated an image of what this top might look like and then (laughs) and then photoshopped it onto a woman to give you an idea and and then what i've read as well or not read i've heard because um harvard did a, a, a business school case study on these guys is you know 
before it even gets to the supply chain, the manufacturer, they're putting it on the site to see how many people click on it to see if it's mm. worth them making or just, you know, if it's if it's even worth them producing or producing in large numbers. So, yeah, it is it is fascinating. And you can kind of tell that when you're on when you're online. Yeah. So that's really interesting, that piece about they haven't even made made any of it yet until they've already put it on a site. And that makes a lot of sense when you now think about their supply chain. So Shein has about 6,000 contracted factories, all small to midsize, all in China. Mm-hmm. And one of the unique things about these factories is they are taking orders on a daily basis using like an Uber-like system, where a company, Shein's going to say, we need an order like on the morning of, they're like, we need this order. Mm-hmm. And whichever factory, you know, they get a message and the factory can do it, they accept it. And then they make it. And so that that means that Shein can very quickly produce a new design. They can very quickly change the amount that they've ordered. By contrast, a company like Czar H&M is typically going to place an order for the season. And between the time that they place that order and the order gets to market, there's very little room for adjustment, right? If it turns mm-hmm. out that actually there's much more demand for a particular outfit, I mean, it's going to be a while before they can get that that outfit or, you know, that clothing item back in stock into market. So yeah. this like Uber-like system really helps Shein make n- new designs mm-hmm. and get them out the door. Mm-hmm. The... Th- the Next thing is just the number of items they're putting out there. So in a 12-month period, there was a a single 12-month period that was compared across Shein, H&M, and Zara. H&M offered 25,000 different products. Zara offered 35,000 different products. And during that same period, Shein offered 1.3 million different products. That was reported by NPR. I have seen other reports that you know, show slightly different numbers. There was a Business Insider article um, which quoted very different figures, 4,000 for H&M in a year, but then 314,000 for Shein in a year. Mm-hmm. But that's an even bigger difference in magnitude. So no matter what the numbers are, Shein is making way more units. It's a real difference in strategy. Basically, once a product is sold out for Shein, maybe they'll replenish it, maybe they won't. H&M and Zara definitely trying to because, mm-hmm. you know, they're not coming out with the next with the next item. Um, and it also just shows that H&M and Zara are dealing with this like lag and operational efficiency, inefficiency rather, when they need to like replenish an item. Whereas Shein's just on to the next thing, which they're going to create in three days using mm-hmm. their AI. Mm-hmm. Now, my my question with that is, given that they've got the AI and given that they're able to design things quickly and sort of get it up on the site quickly... Are they actually producing all of the stuff that they're designing and that they're showing or like like these million items, whether it's a million or 300, are those all of those getting made or are they just all getting designed? I think they're getting. Oh, that's interesting. And that actually might explain the difference in numbers. Perhaps the the 1.3 million are just products that were offered on the site but then the 314,000 number is what was made that might Mm. be a difference Mm. that's a good that's a good point yeah because I do think according to the um HBS case um 
they there are a lot of skews that Shein will put up that get made in like extremely small quantities, like right. if they if they get made at all, right? And then there's some stuff where it's clear this is going to be a banger. Let's like order fifty thousand of them, and then there's some stuff where it's like eh, we'll order a thousand and we'll see how it goes. Okay, so that's really interesting because this leads us to the um, uh, controversy. I wonder if we should get into it now or later. Now, I'm just now, gonna get into now. It now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just going to get into it now. Okay. So there is a lawsuit that was filed just last week in a California district court. It was brought by three different designers who have alleged that Shein's AI technology ripped off their designs completely. Um, but they also alleged, that aside from just the like infringement of their own designs, that mm-hmm. Shein engages in this like system of rampant theft. And that part of this system is stealing something, creating a very small quantity of it to figure out if they're going to get sued. Like if a designer is going to figure out that their shit has been stolen. If the designer hasn't figured it out, then producing it in really large quantities. And they just keep on doing this, right? Like they keep on figuring out how resourced the designer is, how well they're monitoring their own designs. And if you know, initially producing very small quantities to essentially minimize the the potential liability of their theft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, but then if they realize that it's not getting policed, then they're like, all right, we can do way more. That is genius. And <laughs> I mean, like, but evil genius, obviously. Yeah. But wow, I did not realize that. But man, does it make sense? I mean, first of all, it would be so hard to police these guys on this. Like, because they put so many new products up all the time. I Like, you cannot make it to the end of their website. I don't care how much time you have, okay? Because by the time you make it to the last entry, they have added a thousand new outfits. So, like, how do you even keep up? Man, that is smart and terrible. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's mm-hmm. a smart strategy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So a little preview on the controversy there. Okay. <laughs> let me let me go back to two other differentiators. The second to last one is trade law, which is just super interesting, man. You never know when these episodes are going to take you somewhere, you know? <laughs> really interesting. I'm, I'm reading all about tariffs and export laws. <laughs> Did not realize I was going to get here. But it's very relevant for Shein. So if you've paid attention to global politics over the last several years, you'll know that you, the U.S. and China have not had the best trade relations. Mm-hmm. In response to tariffs that the U.S. levied on China in 2018, China began waiving export taxes for companies that shipped direct to consumers, which we know is what Shein does. Mm-hmm. In addition, on the U.S. import side of things, there's a threshold where imports are considered of de minimis value, such that... Um, U.S. authorities will not inspect the goods that are coming in. Mm. That value of a shipment is $800 or less. And we know that Shein's goods are dirt cheap and they're going direct to consumers. So effectively, shipments of Shein products are not getting taxed on the way out from China and they're not getting taxed on the way in to the U.S., they're also like avoiding, you know, additional scrutiny that comes from inspection of packages like questions as to, you know, how those products got made. So Shein is able to avoid these taxes, whereas retailers like H&M that are delivering large volumes of clothing from their factories in Spain and wherever else to brick and mortar stores, they can't avoid those taxes. That, oh my God, these guys have thought of it all. <laughs> I had not 
thought about that, but that also explains why they blew up so much in the pandemic because everyone else had a terrible time getting their stuff from the ports. If you were shipping anything in a container, which by the way is how most people ship stuff from China, is in a container that's got to get on a boat and then has to sit at the dock and then be, be inspected by customs, right? They don't have to do any of that. Oh yep. man, that is, these guys, they are, they have figured it out. Yeah. And so there's actually been a push by certain um, representatives in Congress to basically make an exception to that exception that would change the de minimis value mm-hmm. for goods that are coming from China. Oh, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. That would basically subject because of Xi'an, because of Xi'an alone. They're like, wow. we got to change this. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, because Xi'an is shipping probably billions of dollars into America, but because it's all in packages worth $100, they don't have to pay taxes on any of that. Whereas every time I have a container come over, I've got to pay customs duties, everything else. So, wow. Yeah. That is is fascinating. Yep. Okay. And so in the last one, which is probably the least surprising, but is definitely part of its success, and I feel like it's part of any – definitely any direct-to-consumer business's success is just how much they've taken off on social media. So Shein actually started working with influencers back in their Shein side days, right, as early as like 2012. And Mm -hmm. during COVID is when Shein halls became immensely popular. And it's essentially where all their advertising has occurred. So, uh, you know, and brands like Zara and H&M have not done as well on platforms like TikTok. Yeah. So those are the differentiators. And it sounds like all of them make a ton of sense to you, even though they weren't at the forefront of your mind as a consumer. No, they weren't at all. But it does make so much sense. And it makes sense that HBS wrote a case on these guys. I mean, like, I mean, this is just some smart stuff they're out here doing, you know, a little um, a little shady for sure, particularly on the stealing influence or stealing designers um, designs part. But gosh darn, if it isn't smart. Yeah. Yeah. OK, now I feel like it's time to get into the controversies. Yes. OK, so the first two, I guess you can call them controversies. I mean, I don't know if you can be on the other side <laughs> But they're more like ongoing concerns and they relate to Sheen's environmental impact and labor conditions in their supply chain. So with respect to their environmental impact, critics point out that the sheer volume of their product, just like how much they're producing, is resulting in the overcrowding of landfills and the production of 6.3 million tons of carbon dioxide emissions per year. Sheehan has posted on their website that they have a digital supply chain that limits excess supply, reduces waste, that their printing process uses less water, that they attempt to donate excess inventory before disposing of it. But critics are saying that their efforts just don't matter given how much clothing they are producing and that they are exceedingly opaque with respect to their supply chain, which just doesn't inspire confidence or trust at all in mm-hmm. you know their efforts to minimize their carbon footprint. So mm-hmm. that's number one. Number two, which is really sad, is with respect to their labor practices. So as mentioned earlier, Sheehan contracts with many small to mid-sized manufacturers, and critics argue that those factories are engaged in rampant labor violations, and that Sheehan either doesn't really attempt to or is not capable of, of exercising meaningful oversight to ensure that their 
labor violations are eliminated. In addition, there is a lot of concern that Xi'an is sourcing its cotton from um, an area of China where the Uyghurs have been forced into what is essentially modern day slavery. I think people know the Uyghurs are a Muslim community in China that has basically been placed in like re-education camps and are literally forced to pick cotton. Like it it, it really does um, resemble slavery. Um, just two days ago, Representative John Rose, a Republican from Tennessee, and Jennifer Wexton, a Democrat from Virginia, co-wrote an opinion piece in The Hill calling for greater scrutiny of their practices. Um, the reason why they're calling for this in particular is because Sheehan, the rumor has it that Sheehan is going to try to IPO next year. And what these representatives are saying is if they're going to get the benefit of entering the U.S. capital markets, they have got to answer to some questions. And Mm -hmm. we have the SEC and other authorities need to take a look under the hood a little bit more seriously. So they wrote, the Chinese fast fashion company Xi'an has taken U.S. retail markets by storm, particularly gaining popularity through their intense advertising on TikTok and employment of social media influencers, and in the process raising ethical questions about how their products are sourced. We have serious concerns that Xi'an is not conducting the due diligence necessary to participate in our U.S. capital markets. What's most unfortunate is how many unsuspecting Xi'an customers, especially those who discover the brand through social media, are not aware of the slew of forced labor and workplace abuse allegations against the company. Sheehan adamantly denies the use of any cotton produced in in Xinjiang. However, the math simply does not add up. The U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates that 90% of China's cotton is now produced in that region, and only 20% of the cotton used by Chinese textile manufacturers is imported from other countries. Xi'an works with roughly 6,000 clothing factories throughout China and reportedly produces up to 10,000 new products a day. Based on how extensively the company's business practices are intertwined with the Chinese clothing production industry, it is clear that greater scrutiny and transparency are necessary to ensure Xi'an is not complicit with the CCP's pervasive forced labor scheme. Wow. Yep. Well, that was thorough. And (laughs) (laughs) I would, you know, what I always think about when I hear this claim about Xi'an is, of course, it's terrible and it sounds like true. But also, I think a lot of fast fashion companies are guilty of the same thing. Shein obviously just has like much greater scale. But you see this in consumer goods, you know, across many, many um, categories and industries. A lot of these big companies work with a bunch of different factories. And part of the reason you do that and contract them out as opposed to build your factories in-house is so that you can have plausible deniability to how these factories are treating their workers. That is not just true for Shein. That's true for Gap. That's true for Zara. Very few of these guys are out here truly doing diligence on every single one of their factories, which is what you would need to do in order to have any confidence that laborers are not being mistreated. But, but they are not doing that so that's what comes to mind to me which is not in any way to excuse Shein I just think Shein has become like a pretty effective and easy punching bag for some of this because they're so big but the reality is a lot all of these guys are are, are, are doing things like this yeah, I mean, I, that is kind of the essence of outsourcing is getting cheaper labor. Well, how is labor cheaper? You're paying them less. You know, you're treating them, which is treating them worse, right? I mean, I do think there are degrees of that. I, You know, what China has done to the Uyghur community is atrocious. Um, and so to the extent that Xi'an's 
manufacturing and their supply chain is entirely in China, whereas, you know, Zara's or H&M's or um, any of the other fast fashion retailers have a more diversified um, supply chain, then certainly I think, you know, Shein is potentially more culpable. But I agree that, that I don't think the attention on Shein is because it's the only player doing the wrong thing. Definitely yeah. not. Yeah, totally. Okay. So next we're going to go to their influencer drama, which is in part tied to the controversy we just discussed. So a few weeks ago, in response to the pressure and criticism they'd received around their labor practices, Sheehan decided to host six influencers, taking them on a tour of a model facility called the Innovation Factory in Guangzhou, China, putting them up in a fancy hotel, having fancy 10-course meals. And all these influencers talked about how great everything looked and was. Mm -hmm. One remarked in a TikTok that they spoke directly to the workers in the factory who said they work eight to six and they weren't even sweating they're so happy (laughs) and this received a ton of backlash no one was having it um and people also noted how most of the six influencers who were invited were plus size influencers people of color and so there was also a lot of frustration that i saw about basically the use of um people representing marginalized groups to cover up the exploitation of marginalized groups. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a big, big moment on TikTok. This was, you know, I want to say maybe three weeks ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they they brought all these influencers on this trip and pretty much every single one of them after the trip filmed some for- sort of video saying they treat their workers so well, the conditions are so clean and safe, and I was so happy to see that this is how they treat their people, when when obviously what we know to be true and just talked about is they do not own most of their factories. Right. This little innovation lab is, is probably the factory that they own, right? And every single one of the other factories they don't own, they just contract out and they are not enforcing any sort of standards. And you cannot take this one thing that they showed you to be indicative of their entire supply chain. And the reality is like they know that influencers don't know that. And so that's why they brought influencers and not journalists, right? Like, right. not the U.S. government, you know? Like, that. it's it's <laughs> very clear why they brought y'all, right? Like, because you, right. you are not putting, you're not, you're not doing the math. Right. And people felt very uncomfortable about that, right? Like, you're also taking, I mean, you're paying these people, but you're kind of taking advantage of how they might not put two and two together, you know, right. and it was right. like embarrassing for them after. It's just it all around bad. Yeah. Okay. And the last controversy is just a gnarly set of lawsuits. So they are engaged in a legal battle with Timu, which is a competitor fast fashion company that launched in the U.S. market last September, owned by PDD which owns Pinduoduo, an extremely popular e-commerce app in China. Back in December 2022, Shein sued Timu in U.S. court in Chicago, alleging that Timu contracted with influencers and required them to make false and deceptive statements about Shein on social media. Timu then sued Shein last week, arguing that Shein strong-armed suppliers into exclusivity arrangements, which deprived Timu and violated U.S. antitrust laws. And then, of course, there's the lawsuit that we already talked about, um, also filed last week by designers who are just claiming that Shein is engaged in rampant intellectual property theft and RICO violations. RICO is the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, which is normally used to target like massive drug organizations. Um, But 
there was uh, an act called the Anti-Counterfeiting Consumer Protection Act of 1996 that apparently added criminal copyright infringement to the list of crimes that can be charged under RICO. And these mm. designers are basically alleging that Sheen's, you know, AI is is an example of criminal copyright infringement because this AI is just rapid, uh, rampantly stealing their designs. So... That's everything on Shein. Is there anything you feel like I missed as a consumer? <laughs> um, anything that I think you missed? No, and and I'm, I know we've been speculating throughout, but to me, if you know, if we're moving formal formally into speculation. And the real we question, are. The real question <laughs> to me is: Are these guys going to be able to IPO? Because that's clearly what they're gunning for. Um, and given that, you know, they're being sued by everybody and their brother, they're stealing designs, they've got labor law, you know, issues, the government doesn't like them, you know, like, it's an uphill battle they're climbing here. Do you think they will successfully make it to an IPO? I think they will try. And I think the disclosures are going to be juicy. Mm-hmm. And then and then the reaction to this disclosures will tell us whether they will or not. Like, I think this is going to top the Adam Newman disclosures, which like were nuts, you know, when we were tried to IBO. <laughs> yeah, but but OK, but the but my recollection of the WeWork disclosures um, was that like the things he was doing with the money and how he was framing the, the, the coming ins and going outs of the money were nonsensical borderline on like fraudulent right like whereas like because I remember one of the things being that like he, there was some sort of circular way in which yes it was all the, insider transactions exactly yes. all yeah. insider transactions and paying him because he technically owned the trademark for we work we work didn't own the trade like right. so he like it just was there was a lot of like very suspicious stuff around around the actual money and the valuation right mm. whereas I feel like with Sheehan I mean, who knows? I haven't seen the disclosures and I haven't seen their bank accounts, but like I think they are legitimately making a lot of money, right? They're making right. they're making money hand hand over fist. And so the disclosures I think are going to be more things like this around like supply right. chain. But do you think in America, capitalist ass America, that's going to actually hold them up from being able to IPO? Like if the money's making money, you know? Yeah. That's a good point. Right. I guess their disclosures are going to be like, we have these ongoing lawsuits. We could face regulatory you know, scrutiny. We could face future legal action that might result in a in a decrease or an altogether like ceasing of production, you know. Yeah. And you're right. Everyone's going to be like, yeah, that's a, mm-hmm. well, that's always a risk. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And I, that's why I personally think they will absolutely IPO successfully, because I think America and America's businessmen, they, they might want to talk about sustainability. They might want to talk about the environment. They want to might want to talk about protecting children. But at the end of the day, they value money over everything else. And this company is making a lot of it. And Maybe. so I, I feel like they're going to sail through this IPO, honestly. Well, the one thing I'll say is that I I do think, though, that Biden's administration is very hawkish on China. And one thing that Democrats and Republicans are somewhat bipartisan on is, you know, seeing China as the enemy. Right. And a big Chinese company. I I don't know. I I think I ultimately agree with you. They, They will succeed in an IPO. 
but I don't think it's going to be without some pressure that this administration puts on the SEC to then exert on on Sheehan. So maybe we'll just get a bunch of like lip service about how they're actually cleaning things up. And totally. Then <laughs> T- totally. I, th- I think we're going to get a lot of lip-, lip service around it, but I I think they're going to IPO. I, I mean, I guess that kind of leads me to another question I have, which is just like, do you think you could do this business without doing it the way they're doing it? Right? I have like, the exact same question. <laughs> <laughs> like, like is, is there an ethical right. way to do Shein or in order for it to be Shein, does it have to be unethical? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the clothes are so cheap. I guess I'd, I haven't dug too much into Timu and whether like Timu is just as... Um, potentially guilty of all the things that Sheehan is doing. I mean, there are just so many bad allegations. Or it feels like if they could get away from some of them, like maybe they would try. <laughs> but they, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I'm skeptical that you could build what they've built on this scale ethically. This because th- this quickly, right? The, and the, and yes, they're using AI to do designs, but even that, some might argue, is unethical because AI can only build what it knows, right? right? So it's being fed designs in order to build designs. And as these lawsuits allege, a lot of the designs it's being fed, they don't own. So, right. you know, it feels like even it, it, kind of at every step of the process, you've got to do something a little unethical, a little untoward in order to pump out the amount of product they're pumping out as quickly and as cheaply as they're doing it. Like I I think an ethical version of this company would just make far fewer products and far less money. Right. Like it might just be as successful as Zara or (laughs) H&M. Right. And even those guys, I don't think anyone is arguing are bastions of, of, equality and, and fairness and, and ethics true. right so yeah I don't know you know and this gets to you know the the philosophical question uh, of just like America's obsession with consumerism and like if to the extent that capitalism is king and cash is king and that's what makes this country go round can you get away from companies doing the unethical thing to make the most money. I don't know that you can. If that's what matters most, then that then what you are telling companies is by any means necessary, get to the most amount of money. And 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 so if that's what you reward, then that's what people are going to do. I just had a similar discussion with Nessa's CEO, you know, cuz I think he was saying there just there just need to be more companies that care and like want to do the right thing i was like i mean i guess you can set up a public benefit corporation which has a stated purpose of whatever the public benefit is and you know the board has to not only take into account shareholder value but also take into account what the company is doing to fulfill that public benefit in theory but it is so hard to not just care about the shareholder piece, right? Like I think Patagonia is probably one of the few exceptions, one of the few examples of a company that does kind of, you know, walk the walk in addition to talking the talk in terms of what it does for, because that is a public benefit corporation and their public benefit is, you know, um, fighting for climate 
climate change. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I do think there is this inherent tension and it is it is hard to do the ethical thing when that's not what your performance is necessarily based on. Yeah. I I mean, kind of an ongoing debate, I would say, but, you know, just in American politics and, and sort of society more broadly. But I think given that our country rewards money making over all else, this is what you're going to continue to see. But I do right. think they'll be successful in, in doing this IPO as a result. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is the exact point of where government institutions like need to step in and require some kind of minimum regulation, like, you know, require, fix this de minimis, you know, import (laughs) loophole, you know, and require more inspection and require some kind of like proactive compliance regime. That is the only way you can have kind of both, you know, um, profit for shareholders, but also kind of some kind of responsible business practices. But it takes like an active government (laughs) to do that. Yeah. And an effective one. Okay, it's time for Judge and Jury. And if you're new here, this is the segment where we dive into recent news and ask whether there was a display of good or bad judgment. KJ, what are we talking about this week? Well, I'll start by saying I've got to go see Beyonce. So this is going to be a rapid fire judge and jury. Um, but we're back in the world of entertainment, this time focusing on Ben Platt, who leaders or listeners may know for his starring role in Dear Evan Hansen. He originated the role on Broadway. He's also been in Pitch Perfect and a number of other shows and movies. Well, he's also a part of the ongoing Nepo Baby conversation that's been floating around Hollywood for a long time, most recently in a New York Post cover story. Um, and Ben Platt was on the cover because his dad, Mark Platt, is a pretty prolific movie producer. He's one of the producers who brought us Legally Blonde. Hmm. Now, the reason I'm bringing it up for Judge and Jury is because he did a recent Rolling Stone interview. It was supposed to be a 45-minute interview. About, you know, halfway through, he was asked about um, how he felt about this Nepo Baby cover story and, and people saying, like, you are a product of nepotism. And not only did he decline to answer, but he his team then cut the interview short, so basically lopping off the final 20 minutes of what was supposed to be a 45 minute interview and I'm just curious do you think that was a display of good or bad judgment okay um I just want to clarify quickly and then I'll give my very very quick take number one was did the team tell the interviewer that he that they didn't want that question I'm I feel like guessing. I read something like that. Yeah. Okay. I'm guessing, well, yes. I'm just going to say it's bad judgment all around. Like if you're if you were specifically told not to touch the question, you shouldn't touch the question, interviewer. But Ben Platt, boohoo. Like answer the question. <laughs> answer the question and just say, yeah, it was really nice to have an in, but I'm obviously very talented, you know, or whatever it is. You know, give a good answer. Like, come on, just get over it. Just answer it. Like, I don't know. I, I think that was bad judgment. Yeah totally aligned bad judgment like look I get it you want people to know that you're super talented and you didn't just get where you are because of your dad but we've all heard you sing we know you're talented like no like we all have heard you sing sir so yeah I agree you should have thicker skin and you should be able to to me that's an easy fucking answer yeah you know what I did have some help but I also have proven myself again and again right. and again, starting by winning a Tony at age 23. So I'm grateful to my dad and grateful for what he's provided to me. But I also know that I've worked hard and I'm going to continue to do so. Easy. Exactly. 
fucking they easy. They should hire you. Yeah. Agree. <laughs> fire, fire your publicist and hire KJ and Danny, uh, you know, because we'll, we'll get you farther than it sounds like they are. But yeah. All right. So that's our. That's, that's our, it. That's it. All right, folks, that's it for this week. We hope you are loving the show. And if you are, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five star review. And be sure to follow us on social. I'm Danny underscore D underscore MC on TikTok. And KJ is I am underscore KJ Miller. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>